We're going to be reading a passage from Jeremiah this morning. Uh, it's quite long compared to what we usually read, so try to focus in and hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to begin in verse 220. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not defiled, I have not gone after the balls? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways, a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? All who seek her her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will walk. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, You gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble they will say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, heed the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why do my people say, We are free to roam. We will come no more to thee. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you prepare your way to seek love. Therefore, even the wicked women, you have taught your ways. Also, on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. You did not find them breaking in. But in spite of all these things, you said, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, I will enter into judgment with you because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you go around so much changing your way? Also, you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From this place also, you shall go out with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you shall not prosper with them. God says, if a husband divorces his wife, and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. 
yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been violated? By the roads you have set for them like an Arab in the desert, and you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, thou art the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken and have done evil things, and you have had your way. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we look today at how you have dealt with your people, and we come to understand your heart and your character. We pray that you would teach us today by your Spirit, and that we would follow you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name. Good morning. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of God's case against Israel and Judah. At the very end of the passage that Patrick just read, God extended his indictment against faithless Israel to include, quote, her treacherous sister Judah, who in the days leading up to King Josiah's good reign had apostatized every bit as badly as Israel had. In fact, under the reign of King Manasseh, uh, the grandfather of Josiah, Judah, had, had gone beyond the sins of Israel. And in spite of having a godly king for a time, they never turned back during the period of the kings. They never turned back to God. In chapter 3, verse 10, the last verse that Patrick read, it says, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. That was as good as it got. Last time, we saw the part of God's case against Israel and Judah. First, we saw that before Israel's apostasy, in the first few verses, they had enjoyed a marvelous relationship with God. God said that, that he, had, he had loved them with the steadfast covenant love, and they had loved Him back. He had watched over them during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and He had fed them with manna from heaven and with water from rocks, and He had cared for them and protected them from all their enemies, and it was well with them. And it was well between them and God. 
But then they turned aside to empty things and they themselves became empty. In verses 4-8, through Jeremiah unveiled the root of Israel's apostasy. And that root is thanklessness. Israel, the, their, they themselves and their priests and their prophets and their rulers did not say when they, when they faced struggles, they didn't say, where's the God who loved us and delivered us? Let's go to Him. He's the one who knows how to deliver. He is the one who's always cared for us perfectly. They didn't do that. Instead, they turned aside to every kind of false god. The, the root of their apostasy was thanklessness and the fruit of their apostasy was spiritual adultery, infidelity against the one true God who had loved them so marvelously. And then in verses 14 to 19, Jeremiah laid out the cost of Israel's apostasy. They had gone from marvelous blessedness to very painful curse. And he told them, do you not know that you brought this on yourselves because you forsook me, the fountain of living waters, to to turn aside to broken, waterless cisterns that you have dug with your own hands? This morning, we're going to look at the rest of this kind of opening argument in God's case against his people in Jeremiah 2 and 3. And there's just two essential parts to this morning's message. The first is the seed of Israel's apostasy. And of course, the seed comes before the root. And then secondly, the insanity of Israel's apostasy. And Jeremiah devotes a lot of verbiage to laying out on the table the craziness, the insanity, the shameful foolishness of Israel's turning away from the living God. First, the seed of Israel's apostasy. The seed is pride. Jeremiah 2, verse 20, For long ago I broke your yoke and I tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. The root of Israel's apostasy of their turning away from God was ingratitude, thanklessness toward God. And the fruit that that thanklessness produced was spiritual adultery against God. But it takes a seed to produce a root. And the seed from which their root of ingratitude rose was foolish pride. I will not serve. Israel never could have maintained the thanklessness, the ingratitude that led to all their infidelity against God if they had humbly honored their Creator as their Creator. In verses 26 and 27, Jeremiah writes, As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets who say to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. They attributed the blessings that God had lavished upon them, including life itself, to everything except the God from whom these things had come. And of course, their gratitude to God died a, died a, a quick death. 
Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone attribute blessings that clearly came from God's gracious hand to something or someone else? Well, there are two possibilities. First, bad information. They were confused about who the actual source of all this blessedness was. Second possibility is willful refusal to acknowledge God as the source of the blessing. What was going on here was the second. See, it's never, it is never bad information that causes men to be ungrateful to God. It's never bad information. Listen to God's indictment against all mankind through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 25. This is very familiar to many of you, but listen carefully. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does that mean? It doesn't mean the truth wasn't known. It was that the truth was right out there and they took it and they shoved it under a rug. They did away with it. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Clearly seen. So that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile, empty, vaporous in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged two things. They had made, went through two exchanges. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of animals and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then two verses later, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's a marvelous synopsis of what happened to mankind. Whether you're a rank pagan or a redeemed saint, ingratitude toward God is not merely a failure to be thankful. It is a refusal to be thankful to God. It takes effort. It takes practice. And here's the really important part. Thanklessness toward God comes from a refusal to honor God as God. Thanklessness toward God proceeds from a refusal to honor God as God. The word honor in Romans one twenty one actually is the word glorify. It's the Greek word that's the root of, of the word doxology, to glorify, a glorification of God. Uh, for God to glorify Himself means for Him to put the truth about Himself on display. His character, His attributes, His ways, His works, to put those on display so that, that creation will behold Him. For men to glorify God is for men to acknowledge 
God's display of the truth about himself. His name, his character, his attributes, his ways, his works. It takes a concerted effort for men to ascribe the beauty and majesty and goodness of creation to creation itself. Men don't just miss the connection between creation and God. They have to suppress the truth to avoid acknowledging that connection and thus to avoid being thankful to their Creator. And that truth suppression takes effort. I showed this uh, to you about seven years ago when we went through Romans 1. I'm going to show it to you again. More than 45 years ago, scientists began doing focused research on a tiny little motor that exists in every E. coli bacterium in your guts. It's a microscopic motor, not made up of cells, but it, it's a, it exists in a single-celled organism, an E. coli bacterium, in one cell, and it's made up of a bunch of amazingly organized and purposeful proteins. Highly differentiated protein molecules that make up all the parts. You can fit 3,000 of these little motors side by side in a space the diameter of a single human hair. 3,000 of them. By the way, which takes more sophisticated science? To make something complex really, really small or to make it kind of normal size? Yeah. The chemical receptors that direct the activity of the E. coli as it seeks out undigested food to process, that chemical process is enough to blow our minds in terms of its beauty and complexity. But the, the very structure of that tiny motor that propels the E. coli is, uh, is exquisite. It's beautiful in its design and complexity and in the purposefulness and interdependence of its parts. The man who did the pioneering work on the study of the bacterial flagellum, a man named Howard Berg, noted in a book that he wrote that it looked just like a motor that a man would make. He said it has all the same parts, a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a propeller, and a clutch. More recent research showed that that little propeller, that little drive shaft rotates at about 10,000 RPM and it changes directions completely from clockwise to counterclockwise in a quarter turn at 10,000 RPMs without shearing off the propeller, which is a, it's a microscopic hair. But in his book about the bacterial flagellum, immediately after pointing out that it has all the, the same purposeful interdependent components as a motor that a human being would make, the man, and I'll just show you here, there's, that's the bacterial flagellum, there's a motor, Stator, drive shaft, rotor. You can attach that to all kinds of things. But after explaining that that, that that motor had all the components of a motor that a person would make, you know, if you found an electric motor in the desert, you'd know that there was intelligence behind it. He said, well, he was very careful to rule out any possibility of intelligence behind that astonishing design. Instead, he said that this microscopic 
super motor that human beings with all their accumulated intelligence have been studying now for 47 years and have no idea how to reproduce, that it is the product of an evolution that has been honed to perfection by billions of years of evolution. Friends, it takes work to suppress the truth at that level. The more men discover about God's creation, the harder it is to rule out the fact that God made it. It doesn't get easier, it gets harder. Here's something you can count on in every case. Hard work requires motivation. There's something that's behind all that hard work. What is it? I will not serve. It is the refusal to honor God as God because of the unwillingness to be humbled before God. There's something that requires even harder work, much more vigorous truth suppression, and that is for redeemed men and women to fail to honor God as God or to give thanks. Men who have witnessed the miraculous interventions of God in His creation to deliver them out of harsh bondage so that they can be His own people. For such people to create any created thing or any created being, including themselves, as if it is more worthy of their honor and affection than God is, that takes a whole lot of work. And work requires motivation. So what is it that motivates redeemed men? To go to all the trouble to convince themselves of something that flies in the face of everything they actually know to be true? To go after broken cisterns that can hold no water and gods in whom there is no prophet? Jeremiah said it. Long ago I broke your yoke and I tore off your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. That's the motivation behind all the insanity of turning away from the fountain of living waters to broken waterless cisterns that we dig in the dirt with our own miserable hands. I will not serve. I will not do life on God's terms. In verse 32 of Jeremiah 2, God likens the infidelity of His, of His covenant people to a young bride who forgets the beauty and value of her wedding ring and her wedding dress. <laughs> he says, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Let me ask you married women in the room, how many of you could not describe right now in pretty good detail what your wedding dress looked like, even if you got married 50 years ago or more? How many of you could not close your eyes right now and describe in vivid detail your wedding ring and your engagement ring? And how many of you married women, how long would it take you to notice if that ring was missing from your ring finger on your left hand? How much more precious and valuable should the husband who gave that ring to you be? And how infinitely more precious and more valuable must God be to His beloved bride whom He redeemed for Himself? That's what He called Israel 
That's what he calls his church. But in verse 32 of chapter 2 of Jeremiah, God says, Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Not the pagans. My people have forgotten me days without number. In verse 33, the next verse, he says to his wayward bride, How well you prepare your way to seek love. He's talking about love that comes from anyone and anything except the God whose steadfast covenant love brought them into being and nurtured them all the days of their existence. How well you prepare your way to seek love. He's talking about hard work. They had become very practiced, very skillful at turning away from God and going after anything else. What drove them to exert all that effort? It's simple. I will not serve you. Apostasy never results from a lack of blessing from the hand of God. Never. Apostasy, turning away from God, requires a calculated denial of the blessings that have come from the hand of God. And that studious thanklessness always proceeds from a refusal to humble ourselves before God. To honor God as God. The seed of Israel's and Judah's apostasy was just plain pride. That's always the seed of turning away from God. And that turning away leads to all manner of insanity. And that's what we're going to look at for the remainder of our time this morning, and that's the insanity of Israel's and Judah's apostasy and how it relates to us. Sanity means thinking and acting in keeping with reality. Insanity means thinking and acting in contradiction to reality. Turning away from God is the greatest insanity of all. It produces all kinds of behavior that flies in the face of the clearest and most foundational truths that should anchor and direct our lives. Our passage this morning is filled with insanity. I'll give you just a few examples. Like, first, the insanity of going after anything but God. Again, verse 20, right after they said, I will not serve, God points out that they willingly serviced Every illicit courtesan, every false god that they could come up with. He said, on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. A couple of verses later, he says, you are a swift young camel entangling her ways, a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? And listen to this, all who seek her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. Israel wasn't picky about her courtiers. She'd sleep with anyone, anywhere, anytime. But she resolutely would not turn back to the God who had been a perfect husband to her. The one who had so wonderfully loved her and cared for her all the days of her existence. And you know what that is? That's crazy. That's crazy. And there's the insanity of denying infidelity while insisting on infidelity. Verse 23, 
Israel, how can you say, I am not defiled, I have not gone after the Baals? And God says, look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. And just two verses later, this is amazing, two verses later, Israel's saying to God, no, let me, let me, I jumped ahead. In verse 25, this is great. In verse 25, he says, keep your feet from being unshod and your throat from thirst. There's the part about the parched throat. Keep your feet from being unshod and your throat from thirst. Now let me just ask a quick question. How many of you have shoes that came with a 40-year warranty? In Deuteronomy 29.5, God said to Israel through Moses, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, on you and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. 40-year sandals. God had miraculously kept their clothes and their sandals from wearing out and their feet from swelling for 40 years. He had fed them with manna from heaven and with water from rocks. Not just a little water, rivers of water from barren rocks in a desert. And so He says to them here in Jeremiah, keep your feet from being unshod and your throat from thirst. He's saying, come back to Me. I'm the one who did that for you. But here's what they say. It's hopeless. They say, it's hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers and after them I will walk. They just got through saying to Him that they haven't gone after the Baals and now they're saying we have to go after the Baals. In verses 34 and 35, God says to them, in spite of all these things, yet you said, I am innocent. Surely His anger is turned away from Me. And God says, behold, I will enter into judgment with you because you say I have not sinned. They declared their sin not to be sin. And then they acted like they couldn't understand why God would be angry with them. At the same time that they were insisting that they would continue walking away from Him. That's crazy. The insanity of expecting blessing while you're rejecting the source of all blessing. Israel steadfastly refused to serve Yahweh, but when things went badly... They expected Yahweh to serve them on demand. And that's insane. In verse 27, God said to Israel, they have turned their back to me and not their face, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. They're talking to Yahweh there. But God says, where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them Arise. If they can save you in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Israel. One God per city. Chapter 3, verse 1, If a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. He's not talking about real repentance. He's talking about a fail-safe, an insurance policy God. That's what they treated Him like. He was their backup strategy when their dependence on false gods and other nations didn't seem to be working out so well. Who, who do you think made it not work out? Chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Have you not just now called to me? My Father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? God knew how disingenuous that was. 
He said, Behold, you have spoken and have done evil things and you have had your way. You have had your way. Not my way. Israel expected God to save them after they had willfully turned away from Him to seek blessing and security in everything else except Him. And that's crazy. And then there's the insanity of ignoring God's gracious, painful correction. Verse 30, he said, In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured the prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, heed the word of the Lord. Later in the book, in chapter 5, verse 3, Jeremiah says to God, You have smitten them, but they did not weaken. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. God chastened Israel and Judah over and over. He gives him the reason in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. He says, You only have I chosen out of all the peoples of the earth, therefore I will punish all your iniquities. You know why God was so hard on Israel and Judah? Because they were His people. But because they had refused over and over to repent, to turn back to God, His painful discipline was about to get way worse than it had ever been in the entire history of Israel or Judah. Nebuchadnezzar's year-and-a-half siege of Jerusalem that was soon coming would be absolutely horrific. If you want to know what it actually was like, read Deuteronomy chapter 29 that prophesied what would happen long before it happened. It's horrific. It is insane to suffer grievously for persisting in a sin or in a bunch of sins as if you had no clue how to put that suffering to an end while God keeps declaring clearly to you the reason for your suffering. Where does all this insanity comes from? It comes from a seed that says to God, I will not serve you. I will not do life on your terms. Could this all possibly apply to us? Beloved, if you don't see any connection between Israel's and Judah's apostasy and how God dealt with that, any connection between that and what's going on with the modern church today, I don't think you're paying attention. The evangelical church in the 21st century is moving toward apostasy with unprecedented speed and vigor. It's real convenient for us to say, all this Old Testament stuff is very compelling. It really puts a nail in the coffin of rebellious Israel and Judah. They deserved the punishment that they got from the hand of God, but surely... This doesn't apply to us. Any professing Christian, we say, any professing Christian who'd be guilty of that kind of infidelity against God would just prove his profession to be false. He would prove himself to be unredeemed, unsaved. This can't apply to the church. Oh, really? Turn to James chapter 4 and listen very carefully as I read verses 4 through 10. And as I read, ask yourself, who is James talking to? Because he tells us who he's talking to. James 4, starting at verse 4. You adulteresses. Sound familiar? 
You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And listen real carefully to verse 5. Or do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose when it says He jealously desires the Spirit that He has made to dwell within us? Who's He talking to? You know any unredeemed people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit? He's talking to us. James goes on, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Over and over, God is ready to exalt His people. But we must humble ourselves before Him. God presents the exact same imagery in His indictment of the church through James in the New Testament that He he presents in His indictment of Israel and Judah through Jeremiah and Isaiah and many other prophets in the Old Testament. The image of adultery. And it's not a metaphor, guys. A woman sleeping with every neighbor's husband, that's an earthly metaphor for what James and Jeremiah are talking about. That's just a picture of a far more grievous offense. The spiritual infidelity of God's own people, of God's own beloved bride against God. That indictment, that warning, that call to repentance is as relevant to us right now as it has ever been. Many of us are choosing to do life on our terms instead of God's terms. We are making ourselves the arbiters of truth and we're becoming increasingly ignorant of the truth revealed in God's Word. There's never been a time in the history of the church when you can have as many versions of the Bible in your pocket at a time as there is right now. And there has never been a time in the history of the church in which biblical illiteracy has reigned at the level that it reigns right now. We are declaring things that God calls evil, good, and we are declaring things that God calls good, evil. We don't want to be labeled as intolerant by our co-workers, our family members, or news outlets, or movie makers, so we kind of go along with the culture. And I'm not talking about any one sin. I'm talking about a pattern of callousness to sin that characterizes the modern church. We certainly don't want to be labeled as haters or as judgmental. You know, all you have to do to be labeled that way is just read certain passages in the Bible out loud. You don't even have to add your own words. Pretty soon we're the ones getting the definitions of evil and good wrong. Of course, it isn't just the avoidance of persecution that drives us to to put ourselves in God's seat. It's the pursuit of pleasure. Following Christ demands that we deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and follow Him. Following Christ means loving others as He loved us when He died in our place. It means putting ourselves up on God's altar as a 
a soothing sacrifice in his nostrils by loving as we have been loved by Christ. That's hard work. It's never easy. It's generally not pleasant. As this godless world defines pleasure, there's a marvelous pleasure in walking with God. But it has very little to do with what the world calls, calls pleasure. We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want deferral of gratification. We don't want a hope that is not seen, that we can't fully put our hands on right here and right now. So we go after things that look really good, but that cannot satisfy and do not profit. And there's a whole bunch of them. If I'm not going to get specific, guys, because I don't want to limit your thinking here. Then we wonder why our lives are filled with fear and anxiety and frustration and resentment instead of peace and joy and power and purpose. Denying that we are turning our face away from the one who is all our good doesn't change the fact that that's what we're doing when we're doing it. And God will never turn a blind eye to that kind of rebellion in His beloved children. You know why? Because He loves us. Jesus said you cannot serve God and material things at the same time. It's one or the other. In Galatians 1, Paul said you cannot please men and serve Christ at the same time. It's one or the other. You cannot serve anything else and still be serving God. God doesn't permit any rivals. He jealously desires the Spirit that He has made to dwell in each one of us. God only allows us one legitimate obsession, and that's Him. And He's the only reasonable obsession for us who belong to Him through faith in Christ because every good thing bestowed, every good thing bestowed, and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17 Fearing Him alone, Trusting Him alone, humbly serving Him alone. Beloved, that's the very heart of sanity. Of rock-solid stability and blessedness all the days of our lives. It is insane for a believer to go after anything but God. It is insane for a believer to deny that he's committing spiritual adultery against God when that's what he's doing. It is insane for a believer to expect blessing from the hand of God when he has turned his face away from the source of everything that's blessed. It is insane for us to ignore God's loving and faithful fatherly discipline as he works to break us of all our misplaced trust and affection and to draw us back to himself alone that we might find all our good in him. It is insane for us to treat his hand of discipline as if it's just happenstance as if we didn't bring it on ourselves by our infidelity against Him. And what's most insane of all, beloved, is when that marvelous, loving, fatherly discipline does not stop us in our tracks and bring us back to Him. When He keeps up the spankings and we keep up the sin, never turning our face back to the lover of our souls. That's insane. The cure for all that insanity is the one that James and Jeremiah and Paul and Peter and Isaiah and every writer in the Bible sets before us. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Honor God as God and be filled with gratitude toward Him. 
and remind each other all the time in the body of Christ who the one source of all blessedness is and what He has done for us. we got plenty to talk about if we do that. Your personal holiness, beloved, your personal holiness is not the end point of God's work in you. The goal for which God is making you holy is the holiness of His church, His people, His bride. Don't leave your brothers and sisters in their waterless cisterns because you're afraid to offend them. Love them enough to reach down and do your very best to pull them out and to bring them back to the fountain of living waters from whom all blessings flow. I want to close with the very brief song we call the doxology. All together, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Ah.